Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 24, and we will be considering verses 3 through 28. These are the words of God. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrow. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then the many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who were pregnant and to those who were nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And until those day, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray now that you would open your word to us by the Holy Spirit. and Give us understanding, build us up and strengthen us in the faith. Give us great gladness in believing and hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ. And give us the ability for us to be faithful to you and to walk with you in the day in which you have placed us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I'm not sure that we're going to get all the way through this passage today because I want to spend some time uh, covering for you the different historical fulfillments um, of these prophecies by Jesus in the first century. And that is one of the main reasons why the modern church, unlike the uh, uh, church before it, has been so set on uh, attributing uh, these prophecies not to events in that generation, but to events that are still uh, future to us today. The first reason is because we don't know our Old Testaments and therefore we're unfamiliar with the way the Bible uses apocalyptic language. And so we don't hear 
the language the same way that these Jews who were steeped in the Old Testament would have heard it. The other reason is we're unfamiliar with the history of the first century. And so we think, well, obviously all these things did not happen in the first century, so it must be talking about some other time. But we don't bother to check our history. And so I do want to go into that in, in, to some extent today. So I think we're probably not going to finish this passage this week, and we will have to follow up next week. Well, the first thing I want you to notice here is that this conversation on the Mount of Olives follows immediately after Jesus has departed from the temple area. That's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24. When the disciples point out the great stones of the temple, and Jesus tells them that not one stone is going to be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So these words are ringing in the disciples' ears when they get to the Mount of Olives, which prompts the disciples to ask Jesus a when question. They're asking him when these things are going to happen. And they're talking about three things that they knew were connected. The destruction of the temple that Jesus has just referred to, the sign of Jesus' coming, meaning his coming in judgment on Jerusalem, which is going to result in the temple being destroyed, and the end of the old covenant age, verse 3. And the motivation of the disciples' question is very practical and it's very personal. It is so that they might, if possible, escape with their lives and with the lives of their families. You can't get more personal and practical than that. And that is also Jesus' motivation for answering the disciples and telling them all the things that he does. As the good shepherd, Jesus has a great pastoral heart and concern that his sheep not come under the destruction that he himself, as the reigning Christ, is going to be sending upon apostate Jerusalem. Now remember the backdrop. Remember what Jesus has already told the disciples in the past. He's already warned them about these things. Remember what he told them in Matthew chapter 10. He told them that they will not have finished evangelizing and discipling the cities of Judea before the Son of Man comes. Now, obviously there he's not talking about his coming on the last day, the day of the final judgment, the day of the great resurrection. He's talking there about his coming in historical judgment on apostate Jerusalem. He says, you won't have finished evangelizing and discipling the cities of Jerusalem before I come. And he promises that that is going to occur in the lifetimes of those disciples. He told them in Matthew 10 that he was sending them out on a mission to uh, Judea, and that he was characterizing that mission as sending them out as sheep among wolves. He guaranteed them that they were going to face betrayal and rejection and persecution. They will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, he said. You will be brought before governors and kings. Brother will deliver up brother and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He's already told them all that in the past. He told them in Matthew 10 that they're going to be persecuted in one city to another. And he says, when you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next city. He told them that for the cities that rejected their testimony, it would be more tolerable for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said it will be more tolerable for those cities than for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Now notice that this reference to Sodom and Gomorrah confirms that this is temporal 
historical judgment that Jesus is talking about. Not only has he guaranteed them that it's going to occur before they finish successfully evangelizing and discipling the cities of Judah, but Jesus here is talking about judging cities as cities, the way he judged the Old Testament cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the final judgment on the last day, judgment is going to be how? Person by person, not city by city or nation by nation. But temporal judgment, on the other hand, is often nation by nation or city by city. And so Jesus compares the coming judgment of the cities of Judea to the Old Testament judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember with Sodom and Gomorrah, the way God dealt with the righteous, righteous individuals like Lot, was to get them out. Remember? He's going to judge these whole cities. He gets the righteous out. He sends angels. Get them out. And that's exactly what Jesus is planning with regard to apostate Jerusalem and the cities of Judea that will reject the testimony of the apostles and disciples. And just as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus is taking great care and great pains to make sure his righteous ones, his believers, his saints get out. And they are not coming under the judgment. You remember the conversation that God had with Abraham. And Abraham keeps asking, Lord, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? He said, How, if there's this many that are left righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare them? And he gets it all the way down to ten. And God says, yes. And well, what God does is he makes sure that they get out so that they're not caught up in the judgment on the unrighteous. So coming back to our text in Matthew chapter 24, this, this is, all of this is already in the backdrop. And this is why the disciples are asking. So Jesus says in verse 16 that the disciples are to be ready to flee. He said, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains at a certain point. You have to be ready to flee. He tells them that their flight is going to be sudden and it's going to be hard. Verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. He tells them to be in prayer about this time ahead of time. Verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter and not on the Sabbath. Jesus is concerned to get his disciples to safety and the disciples desire to cooperate in that effort and to get themselves and their families to safety is what this passage is about. And that is why the disciples ask about the sign of Jesus' coming. Not just his coming, but the sign of his coming. You see, by the time Jesus, the reigning Christ, has the Roman legions standing in Jerusalem, it will be too late to flee. The disciples need to know the sign that the destruction of Jerusalem is about to occur so that they have time to flee before it is too late. So you see, timing is critical, and that's why the disciples are asking about it. So Jesus, in this passage, gives his disciples a number of timing markers by which they can gauge when the time to flee is drawing near and when it is upon them. And these same markers will help them to bear up and to stay committed to Christ during these times. As they see the things that Jesus predicts coming true, that gives them faith that what Jesus is saying is true. Because these are going to be crazy times throughout the Roman Empire, but especially for the Christians, and most especially for the Jewish Christians living in Judea. So Jesus warns them in verse 4, <clears throat> Take heed that no one deceives you. And in verse 6, see that you are not troubled. 
He warns them in verses 5 and 11, there are going to be false messiahs and false prophets. And they're going to deceive many. Now, we know from the book of Acts, as well as by other accounts from the period, that false messiahs were a characteristic of the day. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel tells the Sanhedrin and reminds them about Thudius and Judas of Galilee, who were already false messiahs who had arisen by that time. The Jewish historian Josephus also wrote about Thudius, who, pers who persuaded a great number to follow him out to the River Jordan, which he claimed was going to divide for their passage. The procurator of uh, Judea, the Roman procurator, sent a troop of Roman cavalry out there who killed many and took the rest prisoners. They cut off Thudius's head and brought it to Jerusalem. The best-known false messiah in the scriptures is Simon, whom we read about in Acts chapter 8. It says there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, early church father Jerome quotes Simon as saying, I am the word of God. I am the comforter. I am the almighty. I am all there is of God. Irenaeus also wrote about Simon, saying that he claimed to be the Son of God and the creator of the angels. Eusebius also records the account of one named Justin who wrote about Simon. And this is what he said. After the ascension of our Lord into heaven, certain men were suborned by demons as their agents who said they were gods. These were not only allowed to pass without persecution, but were even deemed worthy of honor. Simon, a certain Sumerian, was one of the number, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar performed many magic rites by the operation of demons and was considered a god and was honored with a statue with a superscription to Simon, the holy god. And nearly all the Samaritans, a few also of other nations, worshipped him, confessing him as the supreme god. There was also a man known as Decythius, a Samaritan who claimed to be the lawgiver prophesied by Moses. According to John Newton, the same John Newton who wrote a lot of the hymns in your hymn book, there were so many impostors and false messiahs who were preying on the gullibility of the people during this uh, time that during the procuratorship of Felix, many of them were apprehended and killed virtually every day. They seduced great numbers of the people still expecting the Messiah. So Jesus warns his disciples in our text about this craziness that's about to happen. He warns them that they're going to have to keep their heads. He warns them not to panic, to not be troubled. He says to remember what he has told them and to trust what he has told them. But timing, as we have seen, is key. So Jesus, in addition to warning them about the craziness of the period, gives the disciples a number of timing markers. And I want to run through these. And I think we'll get partway through them today. The first one, first timing marker. Everything will occur during this generation. That's in verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So Jesus is giving them the back end. What period are we talking about here? Jesus says the period of your lifetimes, this generation. All this is going to take place during your generation. Assuredly, amen, before God, I'm telling you that all these things by no means will this generation pass away until all these things occur. Number two, timing marker. Jesus says that his coming will not be a private event any more than lightning in the sky is a private event. 
verse 27. He says, you're going to know about it throughout the empire. There will be no mistaking it. You will know it by the gathering of eagles, he says. Now, you have to remember what the standard and the symbol of the Roman Empire was, the eagle. He says, you will know it by the gathering of eagles, that is, the gathering of the, Roman, of the armies of Rome upon the carcass. What carcass? The carcass of Judea, verse 28. So he says, don't listen to any kind of rumors about his coming. He is in the desert. He says, don't listen to it. He's in the inner rooms. He says, don't pay attention to that. Don't listen to any kind of a rumor of a coming of Jesus that only a few people knew about. In uh, the Thessalonian letters, Jesus, uh, Paul tries to settle the Thessalonians. He says, listen, don't get upset as though uh, by any kind of a letter, you know, that the day of the Lord has already come. And notice he says, you hear by letter that it's come. He says, look, when it happens, you're not going to need a letter to find out about it. Okay? Jesus is going to come in massive judgment upon Jerusalem. The Roman legions are going to lay waste to all of Judea. You're going to know when it happens. There's not going to be any mistake about it. Timing marker number three. The gospel will first be preached to the entire Roman Empire which is what Jesus is referring to in verse 14 when he says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. The word world here is the Greek oikomene, which means all the inhabited earth. But oikomene, like the Greek word cosmos or world, was often used in the New Testament to refer to the Roman Empire. For example, very famous verse, Luke 2, chapter 1 says the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the world, oikomene, meaning all of the Roman Empire. Caesar can't take a census of the world that's not part of the Roman Empire. Okay? That's the way they thought of the world at that time. And that's the way Jesus is using the word here. And that was standard usage. Consider, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And Colossians 1 verse 6, Paul says that the gospel was constantly bearing fruit and increasing in all the world, cosmos. In Romans chapter 1 verse 8, Paul says that the faith of the Roman Christians was being proclaimed throughout the whole world, cosmos. And in Romans chapter 16 verse 26, he says that the faith of the Roman Christians was being proclaimed to all nations, ethnos. In Romans chapter 15, we read of Paul's plans to go to Spain, which means that there was possibly already a church there in Spain. And this means that there was the possibility already that the gospel had reached the western border of the Roman Empire. And thus, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the Jews who were scattered throughout the entire empire had already heard the gospel. Philip Doddridge talks about how rapidly the gospel was preached and churches started throughout the empire during this period. He says this, It appears from the most credible records that the gospel was preached in it, in Idumea, in Syria, and Mesopotamia by Jude. In Egypt, Marmarica, and Mauritania, and other parts of Africa by Mark, Simon, and Jude. In Ethiopia, by Candace's eunuch, and Matthias in Pontus, Galatia, and the neighboring parts of Asia, by Peter, in the territories of the seven Asiatic churches, by John, in Parthia, by Matthew, in Scythia, by Philip and Andrew, in the northern and western parts of Asia, by Bartholomew, in Persia, by Simon and Jude, 
in Media, Carmania, and several eastern parts by Thomas. Through the vast tract from Jerusalem round about unto Alicrium by Paul, as also in Italy and probably Spain, Gaul, and Britain, in most of which places Christian churches were planted in less than 30 years after the death of Christ. So there's a lot of evangelizing. We know about a lot of it in the book of Acts, but that focuses on Paul and Luke and, and Silas and Barnabas. There was a lot of other evangelizing by the other apostles and other disciples that's recorded in other historical accounts. So this is something that was fulfilled. The gospel was preached throughout the Roman Empire before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Timing marker number four. Jesus says that there is going to be a progression of sorrows in verse 8. A progression of sorrows. The first part of the progression, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, and famines. Jesus says in verses 7 and 8 that those are the beginning of the sorrows. Roars and rumors of war. The first century was a time of great tumult for the Roman Empire. There were wars from one end of the empire to the other. Describing the period from A.D. 14 to the death of Emperor Nero in A.D. 68, the Roman historian Tacitus refers to disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, the war in Britain, and the war in Armenia. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Roman civil wars were so common during the period that he had no need to write in, about them in detail. But he did note that the Jews were often the targets of these wars. For example, in Seleucia, more than 50,000 Jews were killed. Alexander Keith writes the following concerning the period. The Jews resisted the erection of the statue of Emperor Caligula in the temple. And such was the dread of Roman resentment that the fields remain uncultivated. In Caesarea, the Jews and Syrians contended for the mastery of the city. And 20,000 Jews were put to death, and the rest were expelled. In every city in Syria, it was then divided into two armies, and multitudes were slaughtered. In Alexandria and Damascus, uh, represented a similar scene of bloodshed. About 50,000 of Jews fell in the former, and 10,000 in the latter. The Jewish nation ultimately rebelled against the Romans. Italy was convulsed with contentions for the empire. And as a proof of the troublous and warlike character of the period, listen to this. Within the brief space of two years, four emperors, Nero, Galba, Ortho, and Vitellius, suffered death. In two years, four different emperors being killed. So the empire is in chaos during this period. Famines. Famines were prevalent leading up to 70 AD. In Acts chapter 11, for example, it talks about a great famine over all the world during the reign of Claudius. It says that a great relief effort took place on behalf of the disciples in Judea. The entire Roman Empire was affected, so churches as far away as Corinth participated in the relief effort for Judea. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Secular historians such as Tacitus, Suetonius, and the Jewish historian Josephus refer to other famines during the period. Tacitus, for example, writes about the year 51 AD. He says, this year witnessed many prodigies, meaning omens, including repeated earthquakes. Further portents were seen in a shortage of corn, resulting in a famine. He says that at the time, there was no more than 15 days supply of food in the city of Rome. 
And he contrasted that to previous period when the, the, the Roman army would be all over the empire and, and Rome would be sending out great amounts of food to feed the army. He said at this point there was less than 15 days of food in all of Rome. And he said it was only a mild winter that prevented complete catastrophe. Earthquakes. You already heard Tacitus referring to repeated earthquakes during the period. From various other sources, we know that there were earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, Campania, Rome, and Judea. It was crazy, crazy period. Another uh, part of the uh, progression of sorrows is that the Christians will be hated and persecuted by all nations, that is, by all the nations of the Roman Empire. Verse 9. Now, we know that persecution sprung up against the church as soon uh, after the day of Pentecost. Jesus warned his disciples that those who hated him would hate them, John chapter 15. And the book of Acts records many instances of persecution. In chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and put in jail, and later they're warned not to speak in the name of Jesus. In chapter 5, they're flogged. In chapter 7, the persecution worsens greatly upon the death of the first martyr, Stephen. In chapter 8, we're told that a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem and that the Christians were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. In chapter 9, we're told of the continued persecution under Saul, who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In chapter 12, we're told of Herod the king, who laid hands on some belonging to the church in order to mistreat them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And then Herod, seeing that it pleased the Jews, proceeded to arrest Peter. In chapter 14, we're told about Jews coming from Iconium, winning over the multitudes and stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. In chapter 18, Paul is brought before Gallio. In chapter 24, he's brought before Felix. In chapter 25, he's brought before Festus and Agrippa. In chapter 26, Paul and Silas are beaten. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes of his various persecutions from the Jews. He says, five times I have received from the Jews 39 lashes. They make 39 because you're only allowed 40, and they want to make sure they don't go over. But can you imagine 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails? Not pleasant. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, Paul said. Throughout most of the period from 30 to 70 A.D., it was the Jews who were persecuting the Christians, with the Romans stepping in to protect them. That's the pattern we see in the book of Acts. But the attitude of the Romans would change dramatically in the 60s A.D. under Emperor Nero. There was the great fire of Rome under Nero, which many think that he started, but he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians, which led to the persecution of the Christians by the empire for the first time. Tacitus writes of that whole episode, Nero blaming the Christians and the persecution of the Christians. He said, as a result of this, of blaming them for the fire, the Christians were, quote, a race of men detested for their crimes. Now, no generation of disciples is immune or exempt from persecution, but the disciples between 30 and 70 A.D. experienced a tremendous amount of persecution in specific fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy here in verse 9. Continuation of the progression of sorrows. Jesus says many Christians are going to turn their backs on him. They're going to turn their back on Jesus and on the church. He says they're going to be offended in verse 10. They're going to be offended at what is befalling the followers of Jesus, and they're going to betray one another and hate one another, verse 10. 
Jesus says in verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many professing believers. In verse 12, he says, lawlessness will abound in Christian circles, and the love of many for Jesus and for the church will grow cold. And he says in verse 13, all of this is going to occur before the end. And then Jesus says there's going to be this falling away and betrayal of false prophets and lawlessness and so forth. Now, the first century church had to contend with much betrayal and apostasy, and we catch different snatches or references of it uh, by the Apostle Paul in his writings in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says that all who were in Asia had turned away from him. And in chapter 4, he says that Demas deserted him. He also says that in his first defense, no one supported him, but everyone deserted him. Tacitus writes of the persecution of Christians under Nero. He said several Christians were seized who ended up confessing and providing information, resulting in a great multitude of other Christians being arrested and executed. Paul writes about in Galatians the Judaizers who were consistently distorting the gospel. He calls them false apostles, deceitful workers. And he says they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In Acts chapter 13, it refers to a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that the pronouncements of false prophets like Hymenaeus and Philetus will lead to further ungodliness and that their talk is going to spread like gangrene. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul refers to those who have already gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, thus upsetting the faith of some. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that savage wolves are going to be coming in among them, not sparing the flocks. And he says that even among them, false prophets are going to arise and going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy that the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And here Paul is talking about the later times of the Old Covenant age, times in that Timothy himself is going to have to live through and minister through as a pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns Timothy that in his day, these evil men and impostors are going to proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Apostle John also takes up this theme. In 1 John chapter 4, John warns that many false prophets had already gone out into the world at the time of his writing. In 2 John, verse 7, John says that many deceivers had already gone out into the world who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And he goes on to say, this is the Antichrist and the deceiver. In 1 John, chapter 2, John says that false teachers went out from among them, but they were not really of us, he says. For they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it may be shown that they are not of us. As to lawlessness, one need to look no further then the emperors Caligula and Nero, who are renowned still in history for lawlessness, for sexual debauchery, and for extreme cruelty. I don't remember if it was Caligula or Nero that was known for lighting his patio by burning uh, people alive. So the times were characterized by lawlessness, and the church was affected by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for just going merrily along and not doing anything about the fact that one of their members was living with his father's wife. So all of these things Jesus talked about 
occurred in the first century. This was an absolutely crazy, crazy time to live. It's the kind of times that could really unsettle you. It's the kind of times that can make you be deceived and, and go off the path of the faith. So Jesus warns his disciples about these things in great detail. Instead of having them being upset and being deceived and going astray, he wants them to sit there and say, yep, Jesus said that was going to happen. Yep, earthquakes. Yep, Jesus said that was going to happen. He said famine was going to happen. He said we're going to be hated. He said we're going to be persecuted. He said there's going to be false messiahs. He said there's going to be false prophets. He said there's going to be Christians betraying other Christians. He said all of that. And so he wants their faith to grow stronger in all of that. Now, what we need to see by way of application for us living 2,000 years later is this. All of Jesus' prophecies came true in that generation just like he said they would. This provides historical, verifiable proof that anyone can access that Jesus was a true prophet. It undermines the claims of modern skeptics and liberal theologians who have based their assault upon the scriptures as being full of errors primarily upon Jesus' so-called failed prophecies because they say Jesus predicted the end of the world in the first century. Okay, They get the fact of his straightforward language, it's going to happen in the first century, but they don't know how to read apocalyptic language and so they think he's predicting the end of the space-time universe. And that became the cornerstone of their... Uh, a contention that the scriptures was full of errors and ought to be rejected. And I know for a fact that still today in Christian universities, there are Bible classes which on the first day of class, and these are supposed to be evangelical colleges, where the professor opens with these words, we know the Bible is full of errors, therefore, and, they, and the whole class proceeds from that premise. A lot of that starts with this. But these are the very things that show that Jesus was a true prophet. Remember the criteria for a true prophet. What they said had to come to pass, which means some portion of their prophecy had to be in an immediate time frame so that they could be verified. If a prophet is always talking about things that could occur thousands of years in the future, that's not verifiable by the people listening to them. That's why these prophecies where Jesus says, I'm telling you before God, this is all going to happen before your lifetimes are over. You will be able to verify this. You're going to know. If I'm a true or false prophet, you're going to know. This is the evidence Jesus gave to authenticate his uh, credentials as a true prophet who spoke from God. And we need to recover that. Because this undermines the claims of these liberal theologians and skeptics today. The fact that, these, uh, that Jesus predicted all of these events and they came to pass proves Jesus' care and his competence to take care of his disciples in the worst of times. I think that's one of the reasons why we have all of this recorded for us in Scripture, is we can see, like, if these disciples were able to live through all of this and Jesus cared for them in such a way as to get them through this and to provide for them and to provide a way of escape, so that they and their families could, in the end, get out from under the destruction of Jerusalem. 
It shows that Jesus cares and that he has the competence to be with us today, whatever he may call us to live through. If our forefathers in the faith could trust in Jesus then, through all of that, then we can trust him now through whatever he has for us. Jesus says in verse 13, He who endures to the end shall be saved. And what that points out is this. True faith begins in a moment, but it lasts for a lifetime. True faith begins in a moment, but it lasts for a lifetime. Faith is also a commitment, like a marriage. It's a, it's a commitment to walk with Christ, trusting in Him, obeying Him through thick and thin. The Christian life is a lot of what we see Jesus calling upon these disciples to do. When things get crazy, when things get confusing, when things, when there's all kinds of false prophets and things out there, when it gets like that, Jesus says, don't lose your head. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember where you are. Don't lose your head. Don't be deceived. He says, remember what I have said to you. Remember my words. Let them be your glide. That's what you can take to the bank is what Jesus has told you. Remember what Jesus has said. Trust him. Believe him. Obey him. Act on his words no matter what occurs. That also is part of faith. And that's why Jesus says not only here in Matthew 24, but he says repeatedly to the churches in Asia Minor in the first part of the book of Revelations, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay? It's like a marriage. Love gets you to say, I do, in a moment of time, but love doesn't stop there. It has a lifetime. It continues for a lifetime. That's the faith he called these disciples through. That's the faith they walked with in the first century. And that's exactly the faith that Jesus calls us, us to have. So let us uh, take encouragement and make sure that our love does not grow cold. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our love for one another. Those are the main signs and the fruits of a true and vibrant faith. Our love for the Lord Jesus does not grow cold no matter what happens. And our love for one another does not grow cold no matter what happens. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.